Um, yeah, as um, these are outlined, I'm kind of here as a, as a practicing curator and as someone who's been interested in thinking about the art history of exhibitions and the art history of display um, and the reception histories arising from that. And I guess um, thinking about the John Martin show and some of the other things that I've done, there's um, what I perhaps in retrospect we can rationalise as, as an interest in creating a, a tension between um, the experience of the past, the experience of the past object and the contemporary experience of those objects in the encounter now having a, having a history, um, um, but also um, suggesting the ways in which uh, our present day experience of culture is, you know, has a history, I mean it actually has a kind of originating point and, and, and a genesis. So um, there's a tension, but there's also not a complete dissociation between how we experience museums and galleries now, or indeed how we think about the artist and the histories that we may present, uh, refer to, uh, uh, embodied through uh, exhibiting practices. Um, and um, I'm talking this evening because, yes, we are at Tate Britain planning a, a, another. Same day, that's 20 years. It will be almost 20 years since the last Big Blake exhibition at Tate in the winter of 2019 to 20, and this is something that we're very actively thinking about now. Um, whilst this isn't kind of set in stone, um, uh, one of the things that I think we do need to reflect on is work which has been done recently on the reception of Blake and Blake's exhibiting history. So that is going to need to be some, in some way uh, a thread or uh, a dimension aspect um, of what we do with Blake in, in 2019 to 20. Um, however, um, one point for starting to think about tonight was um, a recent experience that I had in, uh, in my, with my day job, my curator's hat on, in showing around a contemporary artist, um, showing uh, a contemporary artist the Blake Room at Tate Britain. We keep a more or less permanent installation of Blake um, upstairs in the floor. Uh, well hidden away from any prying eyes. Um, you will find it if you follow the signs carefully. Um, and this is, I'm not going to name the individual, um, but this was, uh, this was a recognisable name in the contemporary art field, who um, uh, uh, was, uh, during the course of showing her around the room, um, clearly uh, exhibited two things. One of which is a genuine passion for Blake. And she's like, oh, I really love Blake. Blake's brilliant, right? He's such a nutter. He's brilliant. I love him. Um, combined with uh, a quite startling ignorance about Blake, um, which was revealed at the point at which she stood in front of one of the paintings and said, oh, I've not seen that before. Uh, the painting in question uh, was this, which is uh, Blake's Ghost of the Flea. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have to tell you, should I? Most of it, anyway. Um, Blake's Ghost of the Flea of 1819-1821. Little tiny little temporary painting. Um, which has been in the Tate collection since 1949. Um, and he's, I think you can say, well, one of his more famous images. Uh, whether you know about Blake or not, or whether you profess to uh, have a passion for Blake, you're likely to have encountered this image in one way or another because it's been utilised in all sorts of contexts. Um, heavy metal album covers, whose thickness is on the left. Um, on the right, Alan Moore's From Hell. Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell from Hell, where the Ghost of Flea pops up. This is a kind of partly visionary Jack the Ripper, graphic, very graphic uh, novel, um, um, and uh, the Ghost of Flea pops up as this sort of embodiment of evil. Um, uh, later on, and you'll know that Alan Moore is a, is a, has a keen interest in, in Blake. Um, both professors have a keen interest, and they have actually looked at some Blake as well, which is uh, nice. Um, or indeed, and this is a personal theory, uh, Terence Fisher's um, uh, I could say late era Hammer Horror of 1973, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, where I think the costume designer had a bit of Blake in mind um, when he came onto this. Um, and perhaps most terrifying of all, um, Noel Fielding's uh, recent embodiment of the Ghost of the Flea um, in um, uh, Noel Fielding of Bake Off, I suppose we have to think of it now. He used to be a comedian, um, kind of edgy comedian um, in, the, in the early 2010s. Um, and here he is, dressed up as Ghost of the Flea. So this is, this, is a, this is a famous image. It's a familiar image. Um, and you know, it's, it's, I suppose it's possible that the artist I was talking to generally hadn't seen the Ghost of the Flea before. I, I think it's really unlikely. What she probably meant is that she's not seen it in the flesh before, and let's be charitable and say that she's not seen it in the flesh before. Um, and that's despite the fact that it's been more or less permanently on display at Tate and elsewhere since 1949. I mean, it's not been a picture which has been hard to get to. 
And what this rather um, made me wonder about is, I so this is the Blake room now, and this goes to the Blake, the Blake, Satan's Mighty Joe with um, boils, if you want a pair of boots, <laughs> Doc Martin, oh, that, that's Susan Matthews, maybe wearing them now. Oh, it, I haven't bought them yet. Oh, I haven't bought them yet. <laughs> I had no part of it, I should say. I should, I so you don't get a free pair, sadly. Um, but um, this kind of made me wonder, um, when we think about Blake's reception history and the way Blake has been received, interpreted, um, whether the idea of Blake is much more important, or has been much more important, than actually seeing or even reading Blake. Um, and, you know, regardless of what the um, uh, uh, shortcomings, our historical shortcomings of the image I spoke to in the gallery about the Ghost of the Flea, um, you can sort of trace back uh, a history of people, even the most dedicated enthusiasts for Blake, going, God, it's quite difficult, isn't it? You know, I don't know, reading the Illuminated books, I don't really, I like the pictures, but I don't really get the, that sort of sense of bafflement and dissociation, perhaps. Um, now, that might be uh, uh, worth bearing in mind, given particularly the flourishing of reception history, or reception studies, um, in Blake studies over the last 10, 15 years. This has really been kind of one of the big areas of new, interesting, important work on Blake, thinking about how Blake has been interpreted, read, um, used in a whole variety of contexts, posthumous contexts. Thinking about his renewal of the Pro-Raphaelites, thinking about how he has been kind of uh, a part of, of, of uh, modernism and postmodernism and uh, a whole array, a whole array of kind of cultural enterprises and activities. Um, thinking of Colin Trodd's work or Jason Whitaker, Steve Clark. There's a whole range of people producing monographs or producing uh, uh, substantial essay collections, thinking about Blake in a whole variety of contexts in the later 19th, 20th, and the 21st century has been a kind of boom area in Blake studies. Um, indeed, I have made my own forthcoming small contributions to this, um, um, and that's uh, what I'm going to be drawing on in my comments this evening. Um, so I kind of wonder a little bit about that reception history. It's not throwing any doubt that, it's that it has produced a huge amount of kind of high quality insight into how Blake has been you know, received and thought about, and partly because the focus has been quite literary. It has uh, tended to be literary historians thinking about how Blake has been published and how Blake has been read, rather than how Blake has been seen. Um, and it focuses on Blake's reception in literary contexts, largely, not exclusively, but largely. Um, but also, I wonder if there's a certain sort of wrong-headedness or a certain misdirection in that body of work, um, in that it deals with the different sorts of representativeness attributed to Blake. Uh, Blake's representative role as a genius, or Blake's representative role um, as an eccentric, as an outsider, as the you know, uh, outlier artist, um, as the avant-gardist in some way, um, often in a very nuanced way, um, but it deals with that, the different sorts of representativeness which have been attributed to him, rather than the way he has been made representative, uh, rather than representativeness itself. Um, um, and it's, uh, this is what I'm going to kind of move on to comment a little bit speculatively on, the, uh, on at the end in thinking about um, Blake as an artist, Blake the artist, and the way Blake has been given an archetypal role as an artist, uh, as, a, as a visual artist, um, and how we perhaps need to kind of think about that even more. Now, leading up to that point, I'm going to do something rather more prosaic, <laughs> which is to... Um, set out some of the evidence, some of the ways of thinking about um, Blake, Blake's display histories, Blake ex ex exhibiting histories. Um, thinking firstly about Blake uh, in exhibitions in the UK and the history of exhibiting and Blake in the UK, thinking about Blake in the permanent collection at Tate and how the Tate has um, presented um, uh, Blake over the years. And then also a little bit of a bit of number crunching um, around Blake's, uh, the Tate collection of Blake being lent out, where he's gone and, and, and how. I'm going to give a slide here, but um, 
uh, bearing in mind that uh, uh, the canon of Blake images is really pretty small, and you know, Ghost of the Flea is definitely in there. Uh, but this Albion Rose on the left and um, uh, Angel of Days on the right, this is the kind of Alpha and Omega of, uh, of, uh, of Blake studies for most people, including the people who would say, God, I really love Blake. Right? Um, uh, it's going to have Alpha and Omega without an alphabet in between. Uh, except perhaps, I don't know what the Greek for T is, but except, for, except for Tiger Tiger. He might, get, he might get Tiger Tiger in there as well. Probably will, actually, please, you'll be taught it at school. Um, but the Blake, which, which, which lots of people know, is uh, it's fairly um, limited. And that's not the Blake that you'll necessarily see in exhibition. So firstly, thinking about Blake in the public eye through exhibitions. Um, as Colin Trodd, uh, and he's actually very important in the survey of Blake exhibitions and Blake um, reputation, reception history, uh, has noted that the Burnton Fine Art Club's exhibition of 1876 helped establish Blake as, and I quote, a persistent, somewhat unsteady presence in art discourse, a volcanic figure to be championed or chastised because of his identification with non-academic art in the pre-Victorian period. So suggesting that at that kind of seminal point, the point at which Blake starts to become the subject of public exhibition, which is 1876, he wasn't one before then, apart from Millen's lifetime, um, um, he does so in this rather unsteady way. Um, that said, it is striking how often and how extensively Blake has been seen, has been before the public eye over the last century, uh, back to the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, with at least one and sometimes several substantial exhibitions in every decade through the 20th century. Uh, and I've got a very long list of what these exhibitions are, but I'm not going to put you reading that out. Um, it is also striking, while that these exhibitions have often been in London, and Blake has been an almost constant presence in the displays at Tate, at the Tate Gallery, now Tate Britain, as I'll outline below in, the, in, in a moment, um, since at least 1911, many of these exhibitions have taken, out, taken place outside the metropolis, Manchester has been especially prominent amongst exhibition centres, but Edinburgh, Nottingham, Norwich, Glasgow, Liverpool and elsewhere feature in their record as well. These projects forced commentators to take account of Blake as a visual artist, uh, challenging what had been established for him in the late 19th century as a reputation for mysticism. Commenting on the show in the Carfax Gallery in London in 1904, the first show of the new century, the reviewer drew a line between Blake as poet and artist. As a poet, he sinks into hopeless obscurity. His mysticism obtained a complete mastery over him, but as a painter, he was saved from this shipwreck by the very process and technique of his art. Well, that sort of kind of inverts uh, Blake is a kind of literary artist um, and turns it upside down. He's actually he's better, he's a better painter than he was a poet, which I think remains a slightly surprising comment for lots of people. This was also the occasion, the Carfax show of 1904, of Roger Fry's important statement of, uh, statement of Blake's anticipation of modern aesthetic autonomy, which pivots on a distinction between the literary and the mystical, and the visual and the material. To quote, the mysticism of his pictures may deceive us into the belief that it is his mysticism which is attractive. But that which is really attractive is his capacity as an artist. And to this capacity, the mysticism was of no help but a hindrance. In Florence in the 16th century, what a harvest might he not have yielded. Here in England, he cut himself off from life and from reality. The horrible fascination of the abstract grew on him. As a poet, it destroyed him. As a painter, while it crippled and limited him, it lends his work in its pathetic remoteness from nature and humanity an interest, which contains something of reverence and something of pity. Now, clearly, Fry is not particularly keen on Blake, um, <laughs> but he does, he does, uh, he does um, consider this, this issue of Blake as a maker of visual images and say, well, actually, OK, he's a bit, he's a bit nuts and rubbish and misled, um, but he is a better painter than he is a, than he is a poet, again. Okay. So there's that sense of, of exhibitions kind of forcing, forcing a reassessment. 
The large exhibition held at the Tate Gallery in 1913, strikingly, the first lone exhibition at the then still quite new gallery, at a time when it was primarily a collection of modern British art, meaning the last kind of 20 or 30 years of British art, rather than of art history, and of oil paintings and sculpture, rather than works of works on paper, was taken as checking the mystical interpretation of Blake. The evidence of the watercolours and paintings seemed to direct the visitor to an apprehension not only of the practical peculiarities of his art, but also the material conditions of its production and his famed professional struggles. Quote, Those to whom Blake is known preeminently, if not solely, as a mystic, may well be astonished at the versatility displayed by the artist upon the rare occasions when he departed from the methods which he made so exclusively his own. Of horror and gloom there is abundance, the long years of neglect and misery are everywhere reflected. The centenary of Blake's death in 1927 was certainly a moment of activity, now involving a host of national and regional museums and galleries, and now primarily about presenting Blake's visual art, as summarised in a flyer issued by the Blake Society to alert its members of activities. This is, uh, is the flyer. The following institutions, all of which have Blake collections, should be visited. British Museum, Tate Gallery, Victoria and Albert Museum, Birmingham Art Gallery, Fitzwilliam Museum, brackets Cambridge, Edinburgh Art Gallery, Bodleian and, and, and Ashmolean, brackets Oxford, the Manchester Art Gallery and the Whitworth in Institute, um, Manchester. Rather less positive about the artist's presence in the major national collections, which is registered there, remember this is a century after Blake's death, and they're talking about Blake collections at really all the major national museums around um, England at least, um, rather less positive about the artist's presence in the major national collections, Herbert Reed took the occasion to affirm Blake as a forerunner of modern art, at once a primitive and a prophet, in terms which pivoted on his capacities as a visual artist and his place in art history. Now he claims Blake is but poorly represented in our public collections, and perhaps for that reason his fame has been built up too exclusively from his work as a poet. And what little has been generally known about his paintings has been on the basis of a great deal of misunderstanding and, underestimation, and underestimation. Perhaps the misunderstanding is the most serious part of the trouble, for it implies positive errors, not merely neglect. From a few fragmentary impressions of Blake's designs, there has grown up a legend of Blake, the incorrigible amateur, Blake the prophet of the Gothic and Romantic revivals, Blake the mystic, and we have good cause to know that mystics make bad painters, and there has been a comfortable self-assurance at the back of, his, of most Odin, sorry, at the back of most Odin minds that, at any rate, the fellow was more than half mad. That year, 1927, saw a surprisingly ambitious exhibition in the South London borough of Lambeth, apparently overlooked to this point by his bibliographers and the assemblies of exhibition lists, but recorded in a typeship catalogue of the exhibition held in the Central Library, Brixton, um, in October 1927. Um, the exhibition, as might be expected, those of you who know Brixton, it's like the Ritzies next door, and uh, um, the exhibition, as might be expected, included Lambeth Library's holdings of books on Blake and published facsimile volumes, um, and the hand list provides references to short articles on Blake contained in periodicals in the reference library. But it also contained a very extensive, and we suspect um, rather overwhelming, selection of facsimile plaints and fine reproductions on loan, including handmade facsimile copies of Blake's works, kindly lent by Mr. William Muir Esquire, the premier Blake facsimilist at this point, amounting to about 80 individual plates, as well as the prophetic books in book form, together with 283 collotype and other reproductions of Blake's works, kindly lent by Geoffrey Keynes Esquire. 27 miscellaneous books, photographs, autographs, letters, etc., of Blake and his contemporaries, kind of lent by Kenneth Povey, um, who was a, a librarian and um, author of a, a, quite an important article on Blake, um, and 37 reproductions of Blake's works in colour by um, Frederick Collier, who um, was a photographer and sometime uh, collaborated with Muir as a facsimilist of Blake's works. Uh, but most striking was the presence of watercolours by Blake, uh, the Assumption of, of Our Lady, an original watercolour, signed and dated 1806, generally lent to, to Lambeth for this exhibition by His Majesty the King. And four original watercolour designs from Paradise Lost, lent by T.H. Riches, 
um, the, the owner of what's been called one of the formative Blake collections. Overall, um, those of you know Blake, uh, t- uh, the um, Tate Library um, in, uh, in Central, in Brixton, um, imagine there was an exhibition of over 400 catalogued exhibits, uh, uh, primarily reproductions and facsimiles, but even um, so, including uh, five original designs. It was quite an event in Lambeth. Um, and the archive in Lambeth holds a listing with their addresses of everybody who attended the opening. It's about 300 people attended the opening. Um, not one name that I can recognise at all in terms of Blake studies, in terms of Blake scholarship. It was, you know, the good people of Lambeth turning up to see a, a huge exhibition of Blake in 1927. This has been completely overlooked, as far as I can tell, even by Bentley, the late G. <laughs> Bentley. Um, I'm, saying, I'm imagining this. Well, it was a facsimile exhibition, it was an exhibition in the library, there's all sorts of reasons, and there was no catalogue, there was a typed catalogue. So there's all sorts of reasons not to um, take that um, very seriously, so the Blake study and reception history. But you have to wonder, you know, what did the people of Lambeth make of going to see a Blake exhibition in 1927, when Blake's reputation is still forming, you might say, in the, in the, in the popular realm? Um, certainly I'd like to be to think about it a bit more, but I don't think I'll be able to. So we'll jump ahead. Um, to the next big anniversary year, 1957, and the bicentenary of Blake's birth, which saw inevitably a lot of activity. Setting current activity in that year against the dismal reception of Blake's one-man show in 1809, one commentator in the um, Arts Press was able reflexively to mark this as a moment of rediscovery. She writes, The Tate Gallery has arranged an especially lavish display of its Blake treasures, the print room of the British Museum has shown not only its Blake collection, but examples of the works of Blake's contemporaries and followers. The Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, which possesses beautiful examples of Blake's illuminated books, as well as many paintings, has also been holding an exhibition. Up in Manchester, the Whitworth Art Gallery has shown its Blakes together, and those belong to the Ashmolean at Oxford, and the V&A has arranged a special exhibition where many newly acquired paintings, as well as drawings, engravings, which have long been housed there, are shown. What would Robert Southey have thought of this? Uh, Southey, of course, being one of the handful of visitors to Blake's one-man show. Um, I don't know what the latest count is, but I think, do we say about 20 people went to the Blake exhibition in 1809? People have tried to work out. It wasn't very many, anyway. Um, We can surely identify the year 1957 as a turning point in Blake's studies, when the mystical vision of the artist was largely overcome and discarded apart from self-publishing authors who you can find on the internet very readily. Blake's editor, um, F.W. Bateson, asserted in that year that the total, inte- un- the total intelligibility of Blake's poetry is a modern discovery, dating it appears to 1957. For Martin Butlin, who in that year published the first full catalogue of the Tate's holdings of Blake, the year's exhibitions provided a chance to assert a vision of Blake whose visual art might be systematically and coolly classified according to normative art-historical methods. He says in that review in that year, this brief survey, this brief survey of events and activities, um, has attempted to trace the various phases of Blake's development as a visual artist as they have been illuminated by last year's exhibitions and publications. The stylistic periods reflect to some extent both the course of Blake's life and the development of his thought, from innocence through experience to reconciliation. That Blake's art and thought evolved and altered over the years cannot be too strongly stressed. So, it all the clouds clear, 1957, everybody understood Blake, fantastic. Um, and then um, the last 50 years of Blake's scholarship has kind of undone that in one way or another, perhaps, you know, complicated in different ways. The art historical development, developmental Blake was naturally enough asserted by Butlin in the 1978 exhibition at the Tate Gallery, which he curated. Although there was still scepticism about Blake's visual art, he said um, his unevenness and repetitiveness suggests that he was not especially self-critical, and that, and that has helped make it hard to approach his work in other than a literary or poetic way. The overall ambition was evidently to affirm Blake as a visual artist, David Byman's commentary from that date, from 1978, makes this abundantly clear. The aim of the exhibition at the Tate Gallery is unashamedly to claim for Blake the status of a great artist. Apart from a minimal amount of supporting material, virtually every item has been chosen to show Blake at his very best, and no attempt 
has been made to give balance by representing Blake's more embarrassing efforts. <laughs> Byman reported, the illuminated books are necessarily represented by copies already disbound, and Mr. Butlin has been careful to avoid the potential monotony of showing too many book pages on the walls, while the Dante watercolours, which is the late, uh, late watercolour series, the Dante watercolours are hung in such a way that the spectator can see through to the room with the early drawings and thus measure the extraordinary freedom of expression the artist had achieved after a lifetime of effort. So it's sort of suggesting that the exhibition is, is, is staging so that you see Blake, a kind of developmental Blake. You see Blake um, when he was a young man, you can draw very well, then you see Blake at the end of his life and he's doing these flashy watercolours which um, just come very easily to him. Apparently. Um, the more recent Blake shows um, at the Tate, uh, at Tate Britain in 2000 and at the Ashmolean in 2014 to 15 have in some sense undone that, that assertion of Blake as old master and shifting the, shifting the emphasis onto his print output, um, notably with a presentation in the year 2000 at the Tate of the entire Yale Centre of British Art copy of Jerusalem, all 100 plates of it, um, risking precisely the monotony projected by Byman in 1978. Um, and I was involved in sticking the labels down around the room, so I can testify to that. Um, Blake the painter, asserted in 1978, has been perhaps displaced or extended um, to uh, Blake, the maker of books. Now, this is a kind of canter through the exhibition history. Um, and there, there are things, I think, to note, one of which is, uh, or to ask about, one of which is how the ex exhibition history of Blake corresponds rather imprecisely uh, with the renewal and change uh, of Blake's reputation uh, within you know, a kind of intellectual uh, culture. Um, and it's notable that you know, the period when the uh, uh, interest of artists and poets was most intense around Blake and most inventive, you might say, with kind of Nash, Sutherland, uh, Geoffrey Grigson, Ruffin Todd uh, in the 30s and 40s, it's actually rather a low period in the presentation of Blake in exhibition. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, other than it's, you know, we're talking about different things. I'm going to ignore that. Should I ignore that? Just, yeah. Yeah. just ignore it. I'm just going to ignore it. Um, so I'd like to think a little bit now about um, Blake at the Tate and Blake presented in permanent collections and whether that presents a different story at all. Um, and the first thing to say is that... Am I going to read his brief? Oh, hang on. Because you have that side, you have to click on the screen again and then it'll work. There we go. Thank you very much. Um, well, the first thing to say is that Blake has had a long, a surprisingly long presence in the National Collection of British Art, formed first at the National Gallery. You'll probably recognise that. Um, and subsequently largely transferred and much extended after the foundation of the National Gallery of British Art at Millbank in 1897, um, immediately known informally and latterly from 1932 officially as the Tate Gallery, in honour of its founder, Sir Henry Tate. Um, we can note in passing that never a collector of Blake. Although the collection of the National Gallery included uh, some representation of British artists at its foundation in 1824, the National School was only presented in any real depth after the acquisition of the Vernon gift in 1847, although the 157 paintings from Robert Vernon's collection included, again, no single work by Blake. After the um, Turner bequest of 1856, including 200 paintings and many, hundreds, uh, many thousands of watercolours by Turner, the problem of how, if only practically, to present the British School became ever more pressing. Their acquisitions also became more adventurous, including such highly individual and visually striking works as Wright of Derby's experiment on a bird in an air pump, um, 1863, so that's acquired in 1863, if you think of what that work is, it's surprising. John Martin's destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum in 1869, one of these kind of spectacular pyrotechnic shows, and Henry Fusey's Titanium and Bottom, um, acquired in 1883. The first acquisition of Blake 
at the National Gallery was as early as 1878, um, the epitome of James Harvey's meditations. Uh, remarkably prescient, given how relatively closely this follows the seminal publication of Alexander Kilchrist's um, biography 15 years before. In fact, William Boxall, the director um, from 1866 to 1874, had wanted to purchase the spiritual form of Pitt, guiding Behemoth, um, as early as 1870, but was blocked by some senior authority. And the archive doesn't say quite what happened, but somebody obviously thought, Jesus, um, <laughs> we don't want that. Um, even so, um, the subsequent as- uh, acquisition of that tempera, that painting, from Palmer's, Samuel Palmer's executives in 1882 remains really very early. Um, together with the, um, the uh, uh, presentation of the body of Christ born to the tomb um, in 1884. So already, before the 1880s are out, um, Tate has kind of three quite important um, um, Blake um, paintings. So the National Gallery has three quite important Blake paintings. But if a few scattered works were available for view in the National Gallery, these were um, moved quite swiftly when the opportunity arose with the foundation of the National Gallery of British Art at Millbank. Right, so there's, sorry, there's um, just a, a plan of um, the uh, National Gallery um, uh, the early 20th century. I'm not sure come back to that. Yeah, so there's the foundation of the, Nas- uh, of the National Gallery of British Art at Millbank. There's the Millbank Tate Gallery, as it later became. Um, and in, eight, in 1909, Blake's works were among the very first historic works to be transferred from the National Gallery to the sister institution at Millbank. A collection seen initially hopefully not anymore, but initially as where secondary figures might be accommodated in the context of a more in-depth and extensive representation of the National School. Um, you saw fleetingly that the, the National Gallery had kind of two, two and a half rooms of, of the British School, uh, whereas Tate and Millbank was entirely the British School, at least initially. And further transfers were made in 1931 and 1934, and in the meantime, all new acquisitions coming to the National Gallery, or new British acquisitions coming to the National Gallery, were allocated immediately to the Tate. The worthies of Trafalgar Square, as Judy Edgerton has noted, uh, were particularly keen to rid themselves of art that seemed too eccentric or literary. Uh, and that includes Blake, and it includes Foosley. I mean, these were among the first things to be shunted down to Millbank. <laughs> Favouring landscapes and portraits. Um, artists such as Blake and Fusey were perceived as the province of the Tate rather than the National Gallery um, and featured um, uh, largely among these early departures. Arguably, what remained at Trafalgar Square, and this is a view from 1930, I think it is, I want to make a note of that, um, what remained at Trafalgar Square in the context of the great national schools of Europe were pictures which in the subject matter, at least, exemplified a more conservative vision of British national culture. It's commonsensical, empirical and materialistic. Portraits and landscapes, Constable and Turner to the fore. As Colin Trodd has noted, the period between 1876 and 1918 marks the gradual emergence of Blake's pictorial works into the wider public world, and the Tate had a prominent role to play in this development. Blake's works were documented in gallery plans as a feature of the displays at Millbank, at least by uh, least by 1911, being then presented alongside earlier 19th century artists. In 1914, this is why I needed a pointer, and I'll do my best. Um, In 1914, they were on show in a separate space, shared with works by the Belgian-born sculptor, painter, and designer Alfred Stevens. So it is... um, um, there you go, the room was 17, it was like 18, isn't it? 18, it was over there. So, Arthur Stevens plus Blake, um, which may make sense, but I haven't quite worked out how. The acquisition of 20 works from the series of Dante watercolours sold in 1914 marked a major step forward in the gallery's presentation of Blake. Um, if this only, but it also only deepened the enormous character of Blake's presence at Millbank. For the Tate, this is really easy to forget, but stress it here, for the Tate had been founded as a national collection of modern British art, meaning artists born uh, uh, after 1790 or, or 1800. Uh, 
And while its remit had been expanded in the first years of the 20th century to ensure a representation of earlier historic art, it remained primarily a collection of oil paintings. Historic works on, paint, on paper being the province of the British Museum, which had acquired Blake as early as 1847, and latterly also the V&A, uh, where the first Blake entered the collection in 1869. Blake was born in 1757, and worked primarily as a printmaker and painter in tempera and watercolour, and he was not an oil painter. Blake simply did not fit, either with the birth uh, date or in his medium. So, after 1920, with the collection bulked up with the Dante designs, Blake was accorded a separate gallery space, initially shared with other watercolourists, and it's um, Gallery 2, down in the bottom left-hand corner, um, Blake earlier watercolours, as I understand it um, it means Blake and earlier watercolours as opposed to earlier 19th century so there must have been some 18th century watercolours in there I'm not quite sure what was in there um, rather than earlier watercolours by Blake um, yeah so gallery 2 in the southwest corner of the site as so this is 1924 um, and uh, uh, so it's after well, as observed by Brandon Taylor the successive changes in displays at Millbank in the early 20th century began to articulate a more linear and authoritative narrative for British art, but with Blake, surprisingly, at its head, or at least a kind of a turning point. Um, a kind of prescript, this is quoting Taylor, a kind of prescript for an, uh, an evolutionary chronology had been written into the enlarged Tate Gallery of 1899-1910, those extensions to the building, pulling apart the individual collections in favour of a chronology of British art from Foosley and Blake to the later 19th century. Uh, Pre-Blake or Fusley um, art only uh, began to be kind of shown at, at Tate after 1910, but the first unabashedly chronological strip had been deployed at Millbank once the pictures were back from wartime storage in the tunnels of the London Underground in 1921. So just a couple of years before this is the new hang. Here, for the first time, it was a museal text for British art history in the form of a, of a processional route unfolding clockwise through the building, coeval with the physical compass of the gallery and with the viewer's likely encounter with it. Um, so, yeah, so you sort of start with the 18th century and you pass through time, three, four, five, six, seven, into the late 19th century, Watts, Stevens, 20th century, and so forth. On account of the sheer number of works, uh, the number of his works, Turner was at least partly out of necessity separated from the main story of British art, being displayed in separate areas of Millbank during the 1920s. Blake had been part, may have been part of the mainstream narrative noted by Taylor, but he was also separated from it by being accorded his own room, especially um, with the installation in 1923 of the Russian-born Boris Anrep's Blake-themed mosaic floor, giving that room a distinct visual appearance, and the floor is still there, although it's got a lot of um, merchandising tat on top of it at the moment. Um, and not there, I mean, that's um, yeah, this is a Camden Town painters. Camden Town, Anrep interpreting Blake. Not particularly reasoned arrangement, perhaps. Um, yeah, so this is 1964. Yeah, so almost continuously from 1923 to 1967, this Blake room relayed a sense of permanence about Blake's place in the story of British art. So that you see Blake now isolated as Blake, still in Gallery Two in that octagonal gallery in the bottom left-hand corner. Um, I mean, this—if you know the site—that's you know, that's still the steps that you go up in the main hall, and the entrance of the staircase. Now, I'm sure. 14, most recent development. Um, yeah, so relaying a sense of permanence about Blake's place in the story of British art. Um, in the 1930s, the loan and subsequent gift of the uh, collection of W. Graham Robertson, or a big chunk of that collection, including the large colour prints, which I'll return to in a minute, facilitated a more extensive representation in the Blake room, where the Dante colours had previously rather dominated. It was, therefore, with some justification that the Tate's curators could, from this date, claim it to be the home of Blake. This sense of permanence was renewed with the new Blake room, um, which we should be able to see in room 7, you know, Blake and his followers in 1989. Um, uh, 
the new Blake Room, which remained in place from 1979 to 1989, with works now on display in a set of um, vitrines, showcased um, displays. Now, this is a display that um, people of a certain age um, would always kind of go back and recall fondly. This is Blake. This is what Blake tape looks like. I can't believe you're nodding, Susan. But um, <laughs> the subsequent dismantling of the Blake Room. Uh, as part of a series of uh, dis- changes to display methodology in- uh, dis- introduced by the then new director, Nicholas Sirota. I don't know, I don't know what happened to him. But, uh, still elicits a sense of regret in some quarters and seemed dramatic enough um, at the time to merit a special notice in Blake and Illustrated Quarterly. In line with the changing new displays put in place from 1990, the long-standing Blake Room gave way at that point to a succession of shorter-term presentations of the collection, generally along topical lines which accorded better with uh, contemporary conservation advice, um, i.e. you can't show works for long periods because you need to protect them from light exposure, and perhaps with the more pluralistic and fragmented vision of Blake that has appeared in modern scholarship over the last 30 years, perhaps again reflecting the times and the logistical strains experienced by museums today, the idea of a long-duration Blake room was renewed in 2013, with around uh, 40 works on display at any one time, now upstairs in the Claw Gallery, and we saw a shot of that um, earlier on, making the long-term presence of the artist in the, dis- in the gallery displays feasible, given the pressures pressures on the collection from loan commitments and the limitations on light exposure. If the lineaments of the Blake displays at the Tate can be fairly readily apprehended, even from the outline, uh, even from the outline chronology I've given here, um, I'm capturing a sense of who their visitors were and what they actually experienced is a much, is a much harder task. There is simply no documentary evidence for quantifying and classifying visitors to the Blake Room during the 20th century. Um, and the, even the visual records are, are rather partial. There's also the challenge of working out well, what was on display at any one time. Um, there are records, handwritten records, card indexes, which would possibly allow you to reconstruct the displays at any one time, but they would need a lot of interpretation. After 2000, things changed, and I'll come on to that. The historical record of visitors to Blake is strictly statistical. We know how many people came in, came per year, and we are left instead with rather scarce and scattered records of individual uh, visits, generally by artists and writers. Um, I'm not going to give examples here, but I have kind of trawled the records to find people saying, oh, I went to the Blake on Thursday, and there's a few examples. They're not terribly enlightening. Um, What we can record a bit more readily is um, the loan of uh, works to foreign exhibitions, a survey of the European, European exhibitions, and the sense that that gives of uh, where Blake has been seen outside of the UK. Um, if we know very, if we know very little about um, uh, the display history other than its broad lineaments, we know rather more about um, exhibitions. Um, and this, uh, and again, I'm not going to kind of run through the entire record, but um, you can basically quantify how many exhibitions there have been in different countries um, um, since, that, since the beginning of the, uh, beginning of the 20th century. And it tallies rather interestingly with the uh, distribution of um, published work in, in foreign languages. Um, Um, for obvious uh, geographical and cultural reasons, the French, Germans, Italians, and Spanish. Uh, oh, sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, this does not, um, of course, necessarily accurately reflect the appetite for the display of Blake's art, considered separately from the history of actual exhibitions. Uh, for any number of reasons, uh, loan exhibitions don't happen. Uh, loan requests have to be declined, whether because of conservation advice, prior display commitment institutional affiliations or disaffiliations, the preferences or prejudices of senior staff involved in the decision-making process, or, increasingly today, the material pressures, pressures on collection care staff which militate against the preparation of works for loan. Therefore, Blake may not have been represented in an exhibition 
where he was hoped to be seen, um, and some of the projects themselves may have been abandoned in the event. What we do have, though, is since 2000, a uh, digital record, an electronic record, of what lakes have been requested and how many times, by, from where. Um, and this uh, analysis of this record, running from 2001 to 2014, uh, indicates requests, successful or not, requests from institutions and galleries in Lyon, Florence, Berlin, Ghent, Vienna, Barcelona, uh, Hamburg, Milan, Turin, Strasbourg, Paris, Marseille, Ostend, Parma and Graz. Uh, with a range of exhibitions extended to thematic exhibitions on the sea, on Galileo, the Book of Genesis, the European Savage, and Miracles, among other topics. Um, the Tate archival holdings allow us to extend this record backwards, so that's since 2001, when there have been at least attempts to represent Blake in a range of exhibitions. We discover, for example, that the selectors of the exhibition of Le Livre Anglais in Paris in 1951 had at one point entertained the idea of representing Blake more fully as an artist. A working list includes the hopeful manuscript annotation, Blake illustrations, rather unspecific. In the event, what was represented in an exhibition in Paris um, was uh, the painting of the Canterbury Pilgrims, borrowed from Pollock House, Glasgow, Glasgow, and a cast of the life mask. Similarly, the organisers of the touring exhibition of English watercolours, which, which went to Geneva and Zurich in 1955-6, had hoped to represent Blake with 9-12 to 12 works, putting him on a par in that exhibition with Cotman, Girton and Turner. However, they were obliged to make do with only seven, somewhat demoting him in the ranks of, this, of artists in this medium. The committee it had been noted during planning had hoped to illustrate the most important artists, such as Blake and Bonington, by up to 11 works each. Now, I'm just going to point to that, because it's, you know, the, the, the sheer availability of works means that Blake wasn't represented in the depth that the organisers had hoped in the context of a, a quite important watercolour exhibition that was seen abroad. However, this data set um, allows us to register the appetite for individual works in the Tate collection, on the basis of the number of times that they have been requested for display, either at Tate or elsewhere between 2001 and 2014. So this is a kind of top of the pops. Newton, 20 hits. Now it's not saying it was lent or displayed 20 times, but there are 20 requests. Satan smiting Job, it's 19. Pity, large kind of print, it's 18. Ghost of a Flea, that we've seen already, gets 17. Nebuchadnezzar, which is hopefully there, 18. The Body of Abel, 16. Beatrice Addressing Dante, 14. Good and Evil Angels, 15. Night of Enetharmon's Joy, 16. Beatrice Addressing Dante, the single Dante watercolour in this, 14. The Good and, Good and Evil Angels, another large colour print, 15. The House of Death, 11. River of Life, large biblical watercolour, 11. Elohim creating Adam, another large colour print. 10. God judging Adam, 10. And then at the bottom of the list, the blasphemer on the left, um, and the entombment on the right, 10 hits each. So there's a kind of ranking there. Surveying the exhibition histories prepared by Martin Butlin in his authoritative catalogue of Blake's works, um, largely upholds this order with Elohim, Newton, Pity, The Ghost of the Flea, Satan, Smiting Job, and Nebuchadnezzar leading the way in the number of appearances. As senior curator at the Tate, Butlin could quite reasonably anticipate the loan request arising from the planned exhibition on the French Revolution to be held at the Grand Palais Palace in 1989. A registrar noting in a note still kept in the archive called Martin Butlin. Whichever Blake is preferred by D. Byman, David Byman, advising on this election, Martin does not mind, though he expects they will want Newton. And that proved to be exactly the case. Oop. Top of the pops. Now that brings me... Yeah, sorry. That brings me to kind of uh, ask the question, well, what, does this, you know, what, what are the major questions that arise out of this um, uh, cumulative record of thinking about Blake in the public eye, 
since the 1870s in public exhibitions in the UK. Blake on display at the Tate, and the record of exhibition and display there. And thinking about Blake as an artist who was loaned out from the Tate collection, which is only one in particular kind of collection of Blake, but nonetheless it provides some indication of, of a record of, of, of uh, 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 possible encounters with Blake's work. I mean, one thing that it does point to is that um, Blake was uh, uh, in the public eye earlier and more extensively and much more consistently than perhaps has, has been um, acknowledged. Um, yet the neglect and abuse that Blake is believed to have suffered during his lifetime is absolutely foundational to his modern image. Um, as pronounced on the title page of Gilchrist's seminal biography of 1863, he was Pictor the unknown painter, overlooked and forgotten. Any commentary on Blake's life and art, whether a press notice or gallery text, a full-scale biography or analytical study, study will almost inevitably make mention of the critical misunderstanding and professional frustrations that shaped his public reputation, the sense of dogged determination and individualism that underpinned it. There are, however, good reasons to approach with a degree of caution this account of Blake's historical obscurity. And that extends back not only to 1876, but sorry, not only up to 1876, but beyond it as well. As Kerry Davis noted, the Blake scholar Kerry Davis, after testing Blake's presence a few years ago on the then newly available digital archive of the Times, even in the years after the artist's death, Blake was, was what Blake was part of what the average reader of the Times was expected to know about without explanation. He was by no means picked or ignotus. Uh, moreover, all this, the commentary that he's able to pick up in the Times in the years immediately after Blake's death, precedes Alan Cunningham's account of Blake in the second volume of his Lives of the Artists of 1830. We might, taking this point further, wonder whether an artist who could orchestrate or have orchestrated for him a public declaration of support from the president of the Royal Academy and a dozen leading academicians, as was achieved with the perspective of Blair's Grave, published in 1805, can properly be considered as obscure or neglected, at least compared to the hundreds or even thousands of fellow artists who never secured such tribute. And Blake was no longer ignoticed by pretty well any standard as a result of the impact of Gilchrist's biography, as was, as was apparently acknowledged in the absence of that subtitle from the title page of the second edition of Gilchrist's Gilchrist Life of 1880, and by which um, uh, Blake was already represented in the V&A and in the British Museum and the National Gallery Collections. Even with regard to the basic question of finances, there may be good reason to treat with caution the accepted idea that Blake always struggled to make a living and stood heroically against mere materialism and economic self-interest. Such may be apparent in the evidence carefully drawn together by G.E. Bentley in his, uh, I suppose it will be his last book now, won't it? Blake in the Desolate Market of 2014, the result of combing meticulously through his own documentary record in search of information on Blake's income from various sources. As Mark Crosby has noted in his review of Bentley's book, that scholar has perhaps unwittingly exposed an important question about Blake's reputation. The perception of Blake as an otherworldly figure, unconcerned about and far detached from the economic realities of his time, has long permeated Blake's studies. The information that, Blake has, uh, that Bentley has marshalled, particularly the amount of money earned over the 25 years or so of Blake's professional career, sorry, the first 25 years ago of Blake's professional career, suggests a rather different William Blake, a highly skilled engraver, frequently attuned to a developing marketplace, who explored numerous commercial opportunities with varying degrees of economic success. Um, clearly the case can be overstated. As Colin Trott has noted, the early literature on Blake was shaped in important ways by a sense of the contrary aspects of Blake's identity as working artisan as well as eccentric and visionary. Now, where I want to kind of end up, and this is the only point really I want to talk about 2019 to 20. There's the question of um, uh, 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 the focus on reception history um, and the way that that reception history, those reception studies, um, have become arguably kind of separated from or distinct from the historicist accounts of Blake. The Blake 
um, uh, who is cast in terms of its commercial enterprise, in terms of exhibiting cultures of its times, um, and uh, kind of, uh, understandably so, in the sense that, well, you know, did um, what Rossetti had to say about Blake in the 60s, did what uh, the, the National Gallery uh, uh, pursued in terms of collecting Blake, did that depend in some way on what Blake did in, did in his own lifetime? Does that depend in some way um, on Blake's uh, exhibiting history uh, uh, and exhibiting practices um, as an artist? Um, and I'm becoming inclined, thinking about the 2019-20 to 20 show, thinking about the forthcoming show, that actually it does, that that modern history of reception, of thinking about Blake, of placing him, actually needs to acknowledge more fully and take into account the historical Blake, that there is some sort of genealogical or genetic relationship between Blake, the exhibiting commercial artist, who was perhaps not as obscure as we like to think he was, and the later reputation of Blake as someone who was incredibly obscure and, and challenged and suffering and uh, the exemplar of the artist. And just really as kind of uh, ways of thinking forward to this is, is the question that uh, are two points of reference which I have in mind in thinking forward to, to the Blake that we present um, in 2019 to 20. Um, one of which is from um, Angela McRobbie in a recent book um, called um, Be Creative, uh, where she reflects on um, teaching in the creative industries now and what she observes as the middle classification of the student body within our time, where uh, uh, which is part of uh, uh, a phenomenon that she analyses, which I think I kind of recognise very strongly, which is where the career of the artist or the non-career of the artist is promoted as exemplary of all kinds of work <coughs> in the present day. Right? That we all should work passionately, we should all work like artists, with the kind of freedom and the entrepreneurial spirit that the artist represents. And why I think that's kind of interesting to think about is firstly because it rings true, you know, because we're we're exalted, we're kind of told, directed to um, uh, work like an artist, uh, without, you know, or, or enjoy the freedom that that um, provides us with the freedom not to have a pension or job security or um, you know, workplace rights, all that kind of freedom, which you think, well, you kind of valorise that by saying, well, that's what artists do; they work in their attic at night. They think, well, what did Blake do? I mean, what was Blake's career structure? He, he had a boring day job where he was engraver. He, he does his watercolours at night. He talks about this. Um, he's, he's in his back room with his wife, colouring his prints. Um, he has a portfolio career uh, where he works on projects which, ha which expire and leave him without income and struggling. Um, so, you know, the reason why we valorise Blake as an artist might be because he embodies an emerging idea of what it is to be an artist which has become all-consuming or has become um, exemplary um, in different ways uh, within um, the market economy. And that, you know, the other way of thinking about this, well, you know, if that idea of freedom is a product of the free market economy as it's instated uh, in the late 18th and early 19th century, you think of Blake's life dates, you think of where Adam Smith and David Ricardo sit within that, um, kind of interesting. Go to Karl Polanyi and the, um, the Great Transformation and his date, 1790 to 1834, the key dates for the implementation of, 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 of a free market economy. And those are the key dates in Romanticism. Right? And Blake is a romantic. So that's one thing which I'm thinking about. The other thing um, is uh, a deliberately provocative statement that um, Pierre Bourdieu uh, introduced into this uh, dialogue with Roger Chartier, the, the historian. Um, where they're talking about the emergence of the, of the cultural field. I know the cultural field is distinct. Um, I'm just going to read this. Um, this is Bourdieu. Whereas for the artistic field, they're talking about the, the locating the emergence of modernity, basically, which they're saying is probably about the turn of the 18th and 19th century in England. Something, a kind of modern cultural field, starts to take shape around that date. For the artistic field, we get the impression that this is a world that was quite taking its time to form. This, began, this begins in the Italian Quattrocento, perhaps earlier than gradually, as if by successive brushstrokes there is the invention of the artist's signature, then of the assessment of the work according to different criteria from the price of the painting, and then you have almost to get the manet to the Impressionist Revolution for the artistic field to begin functioning as such. His chronology is all wrong, but you know, he's making the point anyway. In other words, for, such a, for, for a world to exist in which it is really possible to talk, about, uh, to talk of such a thing as an artist. 
And I think that the same could be said of the field of literature. You could say paradoxically that before Flaubert, writers were not artists. This is the key statement. Here I am laying it on a bit thick, but this is to shock the historians. I believe that it is anachronistic to say that Michelangelo was an artist. Of course, historians are not naive and they, don't raise this prob- uh, and they do raise this problem, but they raise it in terms that are, are in my mind, naive. At what moment was the transition from the artisan to artist? In fact, there was no transition from art- artisan to artist. There was a transition from a world in which you had people who produced according to the norms of economics, basically the norms of ordinary production, to an isolated world where the economic world uh, within the economic world, which is an economic world turned upside down, in which people produce without a market, and where in order to produce you have to have enough capital to hold on, hold on knowing that you won't sell a single product in your whole life. Which almost sounds like a description for thinking about Blake as an artist. Um, now what I'm presented with at that point <laughs> is if you start unpicking Blake as Blake's freedom, the idea of freedom associated with Blake, if you start unpicking Blake's status as an artist and start questioning, we don't assume, we don't start from Blake as an artist and this is how he's been received. You start with the question is, well, in what way did Blake become an artist and what sort of artist is he? Is he an artist at all and what does it mean to call him an artist? Then um, you potentially end up kind of unravelling <laughs> Blake almost entirely. And given that, um, whatever the Tate exhibition in 2019 to 20 needs to do, it doesn't need the Alpha and Omega of, um, uh, of uh, what we know about Blake. Um, that may perhaps leave a certain conundrum. Better, so leave it there. Thank you.